The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 77, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God. You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 27. I think it's only going to be two sermons in this chapter, and then we're going to get into the really, really mournful chapter of Deuteronomy 28. So, Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 10. This is entitled, An Altar of Stones. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Eval you shall set up these stones, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God, and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings, and shall eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, 
Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. The day for typing this sermon started with some problems between a couple folks that I have a little bit of influence over in my life. Fortunately, by the time I got up, they were resolved. It's good because you probably know what a disciplinarian I am. Oh my. Well, the sermon passage today shows a problem exists among the people as well. It isn't perfectly evident. More than anything, it just looks like something Moses has planned for the people when they were to enter the land of promise. But that is just it. The first time the people didn't go in, way back in Numbers 14, that was specifically stated that they did not enter because of unbelief. And that is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 3, where it says these words, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. As this is so, it must be that entering this time would be because of faith in the Lord. But because the author of Hebrews clearly indicates that Israel did not receive what Canaan only anticipated, meaning entering into God's promised rest, what we will see when they do enter is only typical of what will happen to them someday future to us now. This is certain from today's passage, because they will build an altar containing the words of the law on it, and they will sacrifice on it. But they already have a tabernacle and an altar to sacrifice on. Thus, this is a clear note that what we are seeing today is given in typology. Sacrifices imply a need for a sacrifice. And words of law mean the imputation of sin for violating the law. Thus, there is a problem that needs to be corrected. God is quite a disciplinarian. He will not tolerate sin, and so he must judge and punish it. How will that be done? It depends on how one approaches him. For his redeemed, it is anticipated in this passage today. Our text verse comes from Psalm 43. It is verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Though the psalmist's words are referring to the altar in Jerusalem, the altar of God is ultimately wherever God meets with his people in sacrifice. As far as the passage, it is very complicated, even extremely so. I had to lay it out on a separate document to make it understandable to me, just to keep track of what is going on. As I put the extra time into that, I hated to just delete it with the completion of the sermon, and so I included it in this introduction. That will make my introduction typing much easier, as I will have less to think of after typing the sermon to fill up a page, which to me is bonus. Okay, here is the structure of this passage. Pay attention, it is very complicated. Keep all the commandment, ha-torah, the law, which I command you. When you, plural, cross over the Jordan, you, singular, shall set up large stones and you shall plaster them with plaster. You, singular, shall write on them all the words of the law. When you, singular, have crossed over, 
that you singular may enter the land which the Lord your singular God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your singular fathers promised you, when you, plural, have crossed over the Jordan. On Mount Aval, you, plural, shall set up these stones, which I command you, plural, today. And you, singular, shall plaster them with plaster. And you, singular, shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You, singular, shall not use an iron tool on them. You, singular, shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your singular God. And you, singular, shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your singular God. You, singular, shall offer peace offerings. And you, singular, shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your singular God. And it finishes with, and you, singular, shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law, HaTorah. As you can see, there is repetition in the passage. There are also changes from the singular to the plural and so on. Along with these, there is not much agreement by scholars on what several of the verses are saying. Oh my, Monday started with a problem that was thankfully resolved, and it then continued on with problems that needed to be resolved. I hope and I pray that the evaluation you will be given is correct in line with what the Lord intends for us to see and not stretching or abusing any point or precept. May it be so. I won't know until I stand before the Lord, though, and so it's concerning to me when I do sermons if I'm not 100% sure on things. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, you shall set up these stones. It's verses 1 through 10, all of our verses. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, Vesav Moshe Vesikne Israel et Ha'am, and commanded Moses and elders of Israel, the people. The words are unique in the book of Deuteronomy. It is the only time that the elders are specifically said to join with Moses in commanding the people. Nazaken, or elders, will be mentioned five more times in Deuteronomy, but never again in this particular way. The reason for including them now is that what will be presented in the coming verses are words that do not include Moses in their performance, only in their direction. He will not accompany Israel into Canaan. Does anybody remember why he's not going in the typology? Well, not what he did, but the typology. It's Jesus. That's that's right. It's Old Testament law. The law cannot inherit the inheritance. You need to keep remembering why things happen. The law cannot inherit the inheritance. Moses is the lawgiver, hence he was not to go in. The reason why he's not going in is because he struck the rock, but God was making typology there. He could have forgiven Moses, but the typology must be maintained. As such, because he's not going into Canaan, the elders are included to ensure that the duty will be performed accordingly. It appears that these elders are referring to the priests, as will be seen in verse 9. In this united manner, together they are, verse 1 continues, saying, keep all the commandments. The translation is incorrect. It is singular. Lemor shamor et mitzvah. To say, keep all the commandment. The verb is stated as an imperative. 
In essence, you are certainly to keep all the commandment. The verse by the New King James Version said keep all the commandments. It doesn't say that. It says all the commandment. Of this, John Lang states, the whole commandment is the following command for erection, plastering, and inscribing, and so on, in all its compass. Kyle agrees with this, saying the imperative verb indicates at the very outset of the purpose for which the law written upon stones was to be set up in Canaan. I disagree, as will be explained as we continue. Rather, this is the same thought as has already been repeatedly stated by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, such as Deuteronomy 11.22, For if keeping, you keep all the command, thee this, which I command you to do. That's my translation of that. Those words were in their own imperative form as well. It wasn't just speaking of what he was about to state, but of everything he had and he would continue to state in the book of Deuteronomy. What is to follow now is a command, but it is only a part of the entire command that is to be kept. As such, it is a command, verse 1 continues, which I command you today. Which I singular command you, plural, all, the day. It is the first reason why it is referring to the entire command, meaning all of the book of Deuteronomy and not just what is about to be commanded. Only Moses speaks to all of the people. As such, the words Hayom, translated as today, refer to the entire time of Moses giving out this body of law on the shores of the Jordan, as they so often have in Deuteronomy. Included in that body of law comes another requirement, which is set forth. Along with the elders, because Moses will not be present to see the task completed. Verse 2, And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan. And it shall be in the day you all, all of you plural, shall cross over the Jordan. It reads in the day, not on the day. It is referring to the time frame, not a specific day. Israel was to cross the Jordan. But the act of crossing the Jordan doesn't mean that they will be able to perform the actions commanded in the words to come. In fact, this will not come about until after the destruction of both Jericho and Ai, as is recorded in Joshua chapter 8. Verse 2 continues, To the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now the pronouns turn to the singular, you, Israel. Here, speaking of the general time frame of crossing the Jordan, not the exact day that they cross. Moses again notes what he has repeatedly said in the book of Deuteronomy. It is the land the Lord is giving to Israel, the pronoun is singular, as a united people. As always, the implication is that what the Lord gives, he has the right to take away, meaning the right to use it, as has already been clearly explained to them, and as will be explained again quite clearly in chapter 28. The land is Israel's. When they are obedient, they may dwell in it. When they are not, they may not. But the land is given to Israel. To ensure that that continues, Moses says to Israel, verse 2 going on, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones, and you shall set up to you stones large. Again, the words are in the singular, you, Israel. The purpose of this is explained in the next verse. But the idea here is that a structure is to be built and the stones should be large enough to endure and not simply fall apart with the changing of the seasons. Thus, they were to be large. After that, verse 2 continues, and whitewash them with lime. 
vesadta otam basid, and plaster them in the plaster. Both the verb and noun form of the word are introduced here. The verb form will only be seen here and again in verse 4. The noun will be in both verses and also in Isaiah 33:12 and Amos 2, verse 1. In Isaiah and in Amos, it refers to burning, as by lime or into lime. Thus, many translations say whitewash them with lime. That may be the case, but it seems more likely that the rocks will be plastered over to make a smooth surface. To simply whitewash them would make the accomplishment of the words of the next verse much harder and also less noticeable. That verse now says, verse 3, you shall write on them all the words of this law. All of verse 3 is in the singular, you Israel. As far as the words here, there are various views on what this means, such as, from Cambridge, for example, all the purely legislative parts of the Mosaic Institute. They think it's just the legal parts of the law of Moses that are go going to be included on this altar. From Albert Barnes, for example, all the laws revealed from God to the people by Moses regarded by the Jews as 613. In other words, in the law of Moses, there are 613 particular laws. Albert Barnes says that's what they will inscribe. Jameson Fawcett Brown says it might be, as some think, the Decalogue, meaning the Ten Commandments, but a greater probability is that it was the blessings and curses which comprised, in fact, an epitome of the law. The blessings and curses are found at the end of this chapter, next week's sermon. John Gill says, not the whole book of Deuteronomy, as some think, at least not the historical part of it, only what concerns the laws of God, and it may be only a summary or abstract of them, and perhaps only the Ten Commandments. And then Adam Clark says, I am fully of the opinion that the Torah, the law or ordinance in question, simply means the blessings and the curses mentioned in this and in the following chapter. And indeed, these contained a very good epitome of the whole law in all its promises and threatenings in reference to the whole of its grand moral design. Okay, everybody see all the differences there? The words HaTorah or the law can be construed in various ways. The Ten Commandments are a short summary of the law. Deuteronomy is called the book of the law in Joshua 8.31. However, the law is a phrase that includes all five books of Moses at times. This is perfectly evident from Paul's words from Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. What Paul refers to is found in Genesis, and yet he calls it the law. I would personally favor the meaning to be the five books of Moses, and that would be a lot of writing to put on this altar. You can see it's a very big altar. It's plastered with lime, and they've got to write out the five books of Moses. That doesn't mean I'm correct, but that's what I think it is. However, without understanding what is said in Genesis and Exodus, the rest of the law lacks any cohesion at all. In understanding how sin was introduced, the consequences of a world living in wickedness, the grace of God towards Noah, the call of Abraham, and so on, one can then begin to understand what the law was intended to do, at least in the short term. Verse 3 continues, when you have crossed over, in your singular Israel, crossing over. Compare the words of this in the previous verse. 
The previous verse, verse 2, in the day you all, plural, cross over the Jordan. In this verse, in your singular, Israel, crossing over. The idea is that as soon as it is possible, they are to do what they are instructed. It isn't that they can just set a future day and plan on it, but they are to make a concerted effort to do it as soon as possible. This is so, verse 3 continues, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Isn't that interesting? To end purpose, which you singular may enter into the land which Jehovah, your singular God, gives you singular. There is an end purpose, a designed intent for doing as they are instructed. It is so that Israel may enter the land. And yet, they're already in the land at the time that they are to accomplish this task. This then is the second reason that what Moses said in verse 1 is referring to all of the law of Moses and not just to the command to build this edifice and inscribe the words of the law in it. They are being told that in order to enter the land, a land that they have already entered, they need to keep all of the commandment that Moses commanded. It would make no sense to have them build an edifice and write out the laws that they were instructed to obey if it were only a part of the commandment. The words are instructional. You have crossed over the Jordan. You are in the land. Here is what you need to do in order to enter the land. It is, verse 3 continues, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. This is now the fifth of six times this particular phrase is used in Deuteronomy. But the last time it is actually spoken by the Lord to Moses. This time, Moses adds in the words, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. This takes Israel all the way back to Exodus 3, where twice in that chapter, the Lord told Moses to speak to the people of Israel about he would deliver them from Egypt and bring them into the land, Exodus 3.8 and Exodus 3.17. This was at the time of his commission, and since that time, the anticipation has been this land. Does anybody remember what the main point was in Exodus chapter 3, Moses went to the burning bush, okay, and he was given the command. That was Exodus 3. Just ask that to remind you so you can keep it in your mind. Verse 4, therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan, and it shall be in your plural crossing over. Again, the words should be compared. Verse 2, in the day you all, plural, cross over the Jordan. Verse 3, in your singular, Israel, crossing over. And verse 4, in your plural, crossing over. Verse 4 continues, that amount of all, you shall set up these stones, which I command you today. In verse 2, it said, you, singular, Israel, shall set up to you, singular. Now it says, and you, plural, you all, shall set up the stones, the, these, which I command you, plural, you all, today. Are you all gotten a headache? I'm telling you, on the day of sermon typing, I was beside myself what is going on in these verses. And of course, people like Cambridge say it's all just a bunch of errors and people added stuff later and all that kind of stuff. Listen, if you're going to add something in 300 or 400 years later, you're going to make sure it matches what the thing says. There is purpose. There is design in what is being said here. Okay? As far as Matt of all, the name of all comes from an unused root meaning to be bald, probably signifying the bald appearance of the mountain. Thus, it means something like bear or heap of barrenness. Verse 4 continues, and you shall whitewash them with lime. 
The words are identical to the final clause of verse 2, except the word otam, or them, is spilled with an additional letter, avav, even though it is pronounced the same. And unless I put them side by side and read every single letter, I never would have known this. you got to kind of compare things, and you see these little things that the Lord is tucking in his word. The words are in the singular, you Israel. It is the last time the verb form of this word, whitewash, is used in the Bible. Verse 5, and you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. It is not agreed whether or not this is the same structure as has been described in the previous verses. Many scholars adamantly state they are not the same. In other words, you're to build this and you're also to build an altar. They say it's not the same thing. However, Joshua 8 appears to combine the two as one. Here's what it says in Joshua 8. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount of All, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. It is hard to see how the two could not be the same based on these words from Joshua. But because of seemingly different terminology now to be introduced, some find it to signify two things, not one. I would say it's because they didn't go forward and check Joshua. They come up with this argument, and I'm telling you about that. To them, that is seen in the next words. Verse 5 continues, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. Nothing is said of the size of the stones as in verse 2. And these stones are specifically spoken of in accord with the law previously set forth by the Lord in Exodus 20, verses 24 through 26. Here's what it said there. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. The words of this verse and the words they are based on from Exodus 20 do not negate that this is one thing rather than two. In Moses' instruction, he specifies iron. In Exodus, it simply spoke of a cutting instrument. Moses, however, defines that with the word barzel or iron. Rather than using any such instrument, verse 6, you shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God. The translation is not correct. It says altar not the altar. By including the, translators will cause the reader to assume it is, in fact, a separate thing from what was previously stated. Without the article, it could just as easily be referring to the same edifice. Either way, it is an altar, and it is therefore not to have the work of human hands to defile it. Rather, the stones are to be whole, meaning uncut in any way. As such, verse 6 continues, and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall cause to ascend burnt offerings to Jehovah your God. The idea here is that of appeasing sins. Though not at the tabernacle, the words of law written all over the stones are enough to demonstrate this. The burnt offerings are those that are wholly burnt to the Lord. The instructions for them are predominantly found in Leviticus chapter 1. 
No part of them is eaten, but the entire animal ascends in smoke as an offering of appeasement to God. Only after the burnt offerings are noted are the next offerings then mentioned. Verse 7, you shall offer peace offerings. The law of the peace offering is predominantly detailed in Leviticus chapter 3. It is an offering where a part is offered to the Lord and then the offerer participates in it as well. Thus it signifies peace is established between the two. Does anybody know the modern equivalent of that? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. You have peace between the two of you and you are partaking together in the offering. This is why it is also translated as fellowship offerings. It is also why Moses next says, verse 7 continues, and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. In the eating, there is a sense of fellowship and participation with the Lord God. Thus, there is to be a state of rejoicing before him. These peace offerings are made for exactly this reason, communion and fellowship between the Lord and his people. Verse 8, and you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. The words very plainly are ba'er hetev. They are very specific and direct. The first is a rare word, ba'ar. It is a verb meaning to make distinct or plain. It comes from a primitive root, which signifies to dig. And so by analogy, it means to engrave. The word was only seen once before in Deuteronomy 1, 5. It will only be seen one more time way, way back in the Bible in Habakkuk 2, 2, where it says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. The second word, yatav, gives a sense of doing well or being good or pleasing and something like that. Both verbs are infinitives and thus are being used adverbally. And so very plainly will satisfy the translation. Though this has already been stated, it is restated at the end in order to highlight the importance of what is said. The law is to be presented in a perfectly open, clear, and easily identifiable manner. With that stated, the account next says, verse 9, Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, The words simply say, and spoke, not then spoke. As such, it seems that the elders mentioned in verse 1 is now explained as the priests, the Levites. It is these that jointly convey the words of the people, saying, verse 9 continues, Take heed and listen, O Israel. Here is a word found nowhere else in Scripture, sakat. It comes from a primitive root, meaning to be silent. Thus, by implication, it signifies to observe quietly and therefore to take heed. Literally, it says, be silent and listen. Mouths are to be closed. Ears are to be open. As such, attention is to be directed to what is said, and obedience is to be the result. Understanding this, they next say, verse 9 continues, This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. This takes us back to the end of chapter 26, where the two thoughts were expressed by Moses in verses 17 and 18. Today you have caused Jehovah to say to you that he will be your God, and Jehovah has caused you to say that you will be his special people. In this, they have become the people of Jehovah, hence verse 10 finishes with, Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God, and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Again, the thought returns to verse 17 of the previous chapter. And that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. This verse also explains the thought explained in verse 1. 
the commandment, singular, is to be kept. Moses' words now, the commandments and the statutes are the makeup of that commandment. Israel is to do these in order to keep the commandment. An altar of stone you shall make for me. You shall make it according to my word. Large stones and plaster, so shall it be. Follow the instructions, just as you have heard. Make it on the mountain of the curse, and set it up just as I have commanded you. Not a point I have stated shall you miss. That would be perverse. Everything I have said you are certainly to do. The typology must be maintained carefully so that what it anticipates will be clearly understood. Do just what you have been instructed by me, and you will have done just as you should. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. Moses makes a point of three times saying, when you have crossed over. Twice, he specifies this as the Jordan. The words Hayarden or the Jordan mean the descender. It is consistently used as a picture of Christ. Does everybody remember that? The Jordan River is a picture of Christ. It starts up at the top of Mount Hermon in the heavens. It comes all the way down the mountains through Israel. It goes all the way down to the Dead Sea, and there it evaporates and goes back into the heavens. It's a picture of Christ descending from heaven, his first advent, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Everything about the Jordan River is a picture of Christ. If you understand that, then the typology starts to make sense. It is consistently used as a picture of Christ. He descended from heaven to earth and then even to death. He then rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven. The Jordan is typologically a picture of Christ's incarnation in his first advent. When one crosses over or through the Jordan, it is typologically a picture of passing through Christ from death to life. The words cross over are closely associated with the word Hebrew or one who crosses over. There were carefully alternated uses of the singular and the plural in this passage. It is instructive in itself. This is to show that the same people, all, are the collective Israel that are being referred to. You've got all of the people individually, and you've got collective Israel. It's one group of people made of all kinds of people. Everybody see that? This is why you're seeing this plural to singular, singular to plural going on. This is then a typological foreshadowing of the time when Israel as a people come to Christ, rather than as individual Jews do. There is a time when the nation will realize who Christ is and will individually and collectively pass through Christ unto life. As an anticipatory picture of this, they are shown what that means in advance by building this altar. I would argue, especially based on Joshua 8, that the stones set up with plaster and inscribed with the law are one and the same as the altar on which the offerings are made. To understand the significance of the altar, one should return to Exodus chapter 20. The sermon there is entitled, The Earthen Altar, and you'll see all kinds of pictures of Christ there. Quite clearly, that altar pictures Christ in every detail. The reason for building this altar without any tool is because the unhewn stone is something that God created. If man were to shape the stone, then it would include man's efforts in it. Does anybody remember the typology from Genesis chapter 11, the building of the Tower of Babel? What did they use? They made bricks and they used slime. They were making their own path to heaven. It is a picture of works-based salvation. Everything about chapter 11 is taking you to 
get rid of God in the world and to build our own way up to God. And it's also a picture of what's happening right now in the world with climate change, if you remember that sermon. Okay? Remember what happened before the building of the Tower of Babel? What was it? What happened on the whole earth? The flood. And God said, I will never again flood the earth so that all flesh is destroyed. Everybody remember that? And what did they do? They didn't trust God. And so they built a submarine going up to the heavens. All the special people get to be on top. All the poor little people get to be inside. But they are building their way up to heaven with their own works. And they are rejecting the word of the Lord that promised that he would never destroy the earth again by water. It's all a picture of what's going on right now with climate change, with the agenda there. They have rejected God. And they are saying that we must save ourselves. It is works-based salvation. Okay? Yeah, good luck with that. I'll read that again. If man were to shape the stone, then it would include man's efforts in it. Thus it would lead to either idolatry of the altar, which man had made in order to fellowship with God, or it would lead to idolatry of self, because the man had erected the place where God and man fellowshiped. Either way... It is a picture of works-based salvation. It is man attempting to reconcile himself to God by his own efforts rather than accepting God's provision in the process of reconciliation. Obviously, Israel had to build the altar or no altar would be built. But the hewing of the stones provides the typology. It is God's work, not man's efforts, that is the basis for the altar. God made the stones for man to add his effort into what he had made would then be contrary to the premise of the Bible. Man is saved by grace, not by works. The erection of the altar itself cannot be equated to a work any more than the compilation of the Bible can be. God gave the words, man recorded the words, and through the words, man meets with God. Likewise, God made the earth and the stones. Man simply arranges them into an altar and then God meets with man. And more, that altar anticipates Christ in that God made man, the building block of humanity, without any human efforts. And humanity has then moved itself around in order to reproduce, eventually leading to Christ. The fact that Israel assembled the stones does not in any way damage the picture of Jesus Christ. Rather, it enhances it. Using Even, or stone, provides its own picture of Christ's humanity. He is the fulfillment of this altar where man comes to fellowship with God. Stone is used to speak of the Lord and of the Messiah in Scripture, such as Psalm 118. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. This verse is then cited six times in the New Testament when speaking of the Messiah by Jesus or by Peter when referring to Jesus as the Messiah. In Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, whoever believes will not act hastily. That is cited by both Paul and Peter when referring to Christ as well. It is God who fashioned Christ's humanity. Thus, to shape a stone for this altar would typologically be to fashion a false Christ of one's own choosing. 
This is the reason for the specificity in this command. The earthen altar or one of stone pictures Christ who was alone fashioned by God. To hew the stones would then say that the people were fashioning their own salvation, rejecting the only true Lord who is willing to meet with man. The use of large stones provides its own picture. There are many stones, large and thus heavy. It anticipates the weight and the burden of the law of which Christ is the fulfillment. No person can carry that burden. Christ speaks of that several times and in several ways, such as in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that's his yoke on us, but the yoke that was put on him was a weighty yoke indeed. John speaks of the same thing when he says of Christ that his commandments are not burdensome. With that, we see that the plastering of the stones with plaster unites them as one. Thus, it is an altar of stone, even if it is an altar of stones. It is one law, even if it is made up of many. Israel, meaning the people at the time of Joshua, will be in the land. They will build an altar while already in the land. And yet they are being told that the intent of the altar is that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Therefore, and as I noted, the words are instructional. They are intended for Israel, the people individually, and they are intended for Israel collectively once Messiah had come. You have crossed over the Jordan. You are in the land. Here is what you need to do in order to enter the land. In this The type, crossing the Jordan, entering the land, and building the altar, all anticipate the antitype, coming through Christ and accepting his work in order to enter the true land flowing with milk and honey. To further this, Moses again notes crossing over the Jordan, after which they were to set up the stones on Mount of All. Mount of All was noted in Deuteronomy chapter 11, where its significance was described. As a refresher to that, The name Eval comes from an unused root meaning to be bald, probably signifying the bald appearance of the mountain. Thus, it means something like bare or heap of barrenness. Of the two facing mountains, which will be noted again in next week's passage, Gerizim is to the south and Eval is to the north. Or in reference to the layout of directions in the Bible, Gerizim is to the right and Eval is to the left. Thus, it matches the scriptural pattern of the right hand of blessing and the left hand of cursing. For example, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Of all is the mountain of curse, the bald mountain. Thus, there is metaphor that is being conveyed. After noting the name of the mountain, Moses again said that they are to set up the stones and to plaster them with plaster. As I noted, the second time he said this, the words were identical to the final clause of verse 2, except the word otam in them, meaning the stones, is spelled with an additional letter, avav. If that is what Moses truly penned, and I am assuming it is, and not just some scribal error that crept in, I would suggest that this letter anticipates Christ as well. Vav is the sixth letter of the Aleph Bet, 
The number six is the number of man, fallen man. But it can form its own picture of Christ in that he took on the sins of fallen man, becoming sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what occurs in the atonement process. A substitute takes the place of the sinner and the transfer is made. Thus, the act of plastering the stones on Mount of All, if the spelling reflects the original, and I am pretty certain it does, it appears to make its own picture of Christ. That's why it's so important to look at every single letter when you're comparing passages. There's always something interesting in there. So the name and the location of the mountain, as well as the act of plastering the stones on the mountain, all anticipate Paul's words of Galatians chapter 3. For as many as are of works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And more. On this altar, Israel is then instructed to offer burnt offerings first. It is a typological representation of Christ as our sacrificial offering, as was minutely detailed in the book of Leviticus in regard to this type of offering. The altar of the law, meaning the altar of the curse, on the mountain of the curse, and everything else associated with this location and altar that we have seen so far is the place where the sin is dealt with, anticipating Christ. Every single detail of it is so. Once that sin is dealt with and the transfer of the penalty of the law is made, only then are the peace offerings to be made. Restoration has been effected. Peace between the warring parties is made and fellowship through the meal is realized. With all of this stated, Moses then returns to the writing of the law very plainly on the altar. It is its own stress in the repetition, and it is its own stress in the use of two verbs in an adverbial manner. It is, in type, anticipatory of Christ, who is the embodiment and fulfillment of the law. He clearly and plainly is to be shown this in the Gospels. Thus, the altar pictures Christ in its makeup, it pictures Christ in the means it is fashioned. It pictures Christ in what is inscribed on it. It pictures Christ in where it is located. And it also anticipates Christ in what is offered on it. Everything about the passage today, every single detail is given to alert Israel to their need for Jesus Christ. Someday they will pass through the descender. They will put their faith in him and they will find that the law was only a tutor to bring them to him. What is being conveyed here is then summed up in the final two verses that we looked at. The very fact that an offering had to be made upon the altar of the law tells us that the law has been violated and that a sacrifice is needed to atone for it. Therefore, when Moses says that they are the people of the Lord God and they are to obey the Lord and to keep his commandments and statutes, it is telling them that they will do so only through Christ's perfect obedience to the law. In every way, in Israel's building of this altar, it is anticipatory as a type of their coming to Christ who fulfills the law for them. As such, it's important for us in the church 
to remember this same lesson and to not fall back on the law as a means of pleasing God. How sad it is that so many churches do that as well. They keep going back to the law. They keep doing it. Can't please God that way. If you are saved, you are saved. But if you go back to law observance, you are setting aside the work of Jesus Christ. How displeasing to God it must be when someone starts well and then trips up in his race to the end. Not only does he stop growing in Christ, he disgraces the very work of Christ that saved him in the first place. Let us be wise and simply trust in the finished, final, and forever work of Christ on our behalf. When we are told to obey his commandments by John, as we noted a few minutes ago, John was not speaking of the law of Moses. He was referring to our obligations under the new covenant. It is a covenant that came at a very high price to initiate. Christ gave his life up under the old and in fulfillment of it so that we could have new life in him. Let us remember this and be observant to his commands out of gratitude for such a great salvation. What a wonderful passage. I mean, just what a wonderful passage when you look at it. And like I said, I started that sermon and my head was hurting. All through the thing, I'm thinking, what are you telling us, Lord? Plural, singular, plural, singular. And it all fits. It all fits so perfectly. He's just trying to wake us up. He's trying to wake up every single Jew and the nation of Israel collectively that they need to come to Christ. Now, right now, Jews are coming to Christ individually and they're going to be saved, but the nation is not saved. And so someday, what we're seeing right in this passage right here will come about. Israel will be saved as a nation. You know, just think it through. If God were to reject Israel, how easy it would be to reject you. Amen. He will never reject Israel, not because they're a good bunch of people. I can tell you right now, they are not. They're not right with the Lord. They're as perverse as the United States and maybe more so. But God has covenanted with them. And this is the nature of God, to never violate his own word. Yes. So when it says that if you believe that Christ died for your sins that he was buried and he rose again and that you will be saved by believing that. It means that you will be saved by believing that, not that you will be saved until you mess up again. That means that it is done. And Israel is the template for us individually to see this and to understand the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. How reassuring that is, because this is a terrible world. I mean, this is just, an, it's getting worse by the minute. Yes. And we're being shown in our own society, how bad it, it can get and how quickly it can get in that direction. Borders open. Nobody's down there defending the borders of this nation. There's thousands every single day. Thousands and thousands. What was it? 90,000 since August have come through. And they're not checking where they're from. People that have bad intent for the United States are coming with these people. And they're just coming across. You think that it's bad in America right now? You wait until these cells have been developed. And they start doing their work. This is all coming on the world. This isn't just an American thing. This is happening everywhere. The world is going to go into what the Bible describes as the tribulation period. As John Haller says, I don't have time to watch his videos, but people always cite him to me. It's the end times. What do you expect? Yeah, what do you think it's going to look like? The world is going to devolve. It's not something that we just hope doesn't happen during our life. It's going to. Whether it's in our life or not, it is going to happen. The Bible says it, and the Bible is the Word of God. So get right with Jesus, and no matter how bad it gets and how distressed you are, just hold on to your salvation. 
That's the one thing they can't take away from you. They can take away everything else from you but that. So hold on to that, okay? But first, call on Christ and be saved. Our closing verse comes from Galatians chapter 2. What good words, what wonderful words. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Christ didn't need to be justified. He was already just. So what we need to do is see his fulfillment of the law in his already just state, and he remained just and righteous. He died, and then he rose again, and he offers what he possesses to us, F-O-C, free of charge, if we simply believe. Don't lose your rewards by going back to the law. Don't do it. Stay in the grace of Christ. Next week is Deuteronomy 27, 11 through 26. Remember all that you heard and you saw, and then do all the words of this law. That'll be our 76 Deuteronomy sermon. And I'll tell you, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I'm serious when I say that. I have to say that to myself a lot during the week when I'm really upset or I'm down or just repeat those words to myself. And sometimes I'll actually type them in a message or an email to somebody else. I might just type the first eight or nine words and they know where I'm going to go and I don't even have to finish. If they watch the sermons, they know they're going to hear that. And I believe it with all my heart. He has a plan and a purpose for us. Okay, i got a poem for you, but I also got some corn. If you can get this question, and I made it an easy one. I, I know I say that a lot, but this one is brilliantly easy. If you get it, there is no BPA lining in this. I don't know what that means. Green giant, whole kernel, sweet corn, no salt added. Two for one at Publix. This is to spur you on your own stocking of your shelves. I want to know what the BPA lining is. I bet it means that there's no, it, it won't last a long time or something. I don't know. Find out. Okay. Um, Oh, oh, chemicals that leach into stuff. Good, there's no BPA. This is healthy for you and your children. Okay. Today we have learned about whitewashing stones with lime. Mention one of the two times that whitewash is mentioned in the New Testament. Tombs. Oh, that was fast. This guy gets some corn. That, I, I didn't even finish it and he got it. That's correct. I'm going to read you both of them just so you're fully brushed up on. Does anybody know the other one? Yay, that's it. You whitewashed wall. Paul called the high priest that. Yeah, yeah. yeah good job. Okay. Wow. See, I told you it would be brilliantly easy. Good job, guys. Wow. Those, those tombs. Okay. An altar of stones. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, so to you I am relaying. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime. So you shall do. You shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over. So you shall do that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it is true, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. 
Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Abal you shall set up these stones at that time, which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. Can I get an amen? An altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God, so you shall do, and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God, just as I have instructed you. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law as an acknowledgment nod. Then Moses and the priests, the Levites, spoke to all Israel, saying, Words by which to applaud? Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God, as to you I say, and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful pictures of Christ that keep coming up in these passages. We've got words of law. We've got confusing words. We've got words which scare us in our hearts, and we've got words that uplift us when we read them. All kinds of things come about in your word, but hidden there in them are beautiful pictures of the giving of your son for us. An altar of stones all plastered together so it's one all inscribed with every word of the law. And there is Christ who fulfilled every word of the law. And then we have the sacrifice for our sins on that altar. And then we have the fellowship with our Lord because of the sacrifice that he made. Thank you for the easy, easy pictures that come to our mind when we look at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and see what he has done for us and then the grace that we have received. How easy it is if we just simply receive it. Help us to be wise and to do so. To your glory we pray, and in his name we do pray. Amen. Just think of it. You know, he was there in the garden, and he was praying, and he prayed, sweat like blood. Sweat, sweat what is it? Um, drops of blood is what it says. He was so overwhelmed with what he was about to go through that he sweat drops of blood for you and me. Take this with the proper attitude, always, that Christ did this for you.